This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. While our team of tax pros are well-versed in all things tax, our areas of expertise include rental real estate and equity compensation. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. At Capital Area Tax Consultants, we believe in pricing transparency and flat fees. Before engaging with us, you'll receive an upfront quote in black and white with a description of any services to be performed. This way, there are no hidden surprises. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Welcome to the Tech Money Podcast, where the worlds of technology and personal finance collide. Hosted by certified financial planner, speaker, blogger, and self-proclaimed personal finance nerd, Malcolm Etheridge. Each episode aims to make you just a little bit smarter about your money, all from the perspective of the tech professional. Without further delay, here's your host. Hey there, listeners. Malcolm here. And on today's show, we're talking equity compensation. More specifically, we're talking about some of the common tax traps and pitfalls to avoid when managing your equity compensation. When it comes to your equity, every decision, whether it's to do something with your shares or to do nothing at all, comes with a tax consequence. But sometimes the consequences of that action or inaction are less obvious until it's years later, the tax bill is due, and you have no idea how you ended up in this mess. And while paying more taxes is simply a function of making more money, there is obviously something to be said for being proactive and doing your best to mitigate that tax bill, no matter how inevitable it may seem. And as tax season comes to a close here, I decided that it would be a good idea to dedicate an episode to discussing those very tax consequences and some tax traps to be aware of. But since I myself am by no means the foremost expert on the tax code, I decided to call up someone who is and have a conversation. Dan Hodgen is the founder and CEO of Silicon Valley Tax Group. Dan founded the firm in 2012, and he and his team have done tax work for some of Silicon Valley's most prominent companies, including Tesla, Google, Apple, and many others. Dan started his career at Moss Adams, where he first built up his expertise working with high net worth individuals, tech entrepreneurs, and some early stage startups you would certainly recognize by name. All that to say, Dan knows his stuff when it comes to the world of equity compensation and complex tax situations. So with that brief introduction, welcome Dan Hodgen to the Tech Money Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Malcolm. Appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate you being here, Dan. And I I breezed through your resume pretty quickly in my intro there. Uh, What else should I have included about you? Uh, That was was pretty good. This is my 19th tax season. Um, So, you know, I've I've been through through it quite a few times, uh, every tax season for you know, has new challenges and uh, and it's a new adventure, but uh, I've gotten through 18 and hopefully three weeks from today, I'll have uh, been through 19. So um, all good. And I can probably infer on my own based on, on the name, but what types of clients do you guys work with typically? Yeah, at this point, we're almost exclusively helping stock-based um, people. So if you've got stock comp, we're, we're a good home for you. And that, that runs the gamut from early stage ISO, 
uh, stock grants to late stage companies where you're getting a lot of RSUs and ESPP. Um, so basically anything having to do with stock compensation is, is a good, good fit for our practice. And it's probably pretty obvious since you're in the Bay Area, but what made you decide to work with folks in the tech space specifically or folks with <laughs> equity compensation, I should say? Specifically. You know, it, it just kind of happened naturally. I did a lot of it uh, in my early days um, at Moss Adams. It was actually Muller, Nixon, and Williams back then, um, and pretty tight with a lot of the uh, the partners there. And uh, when I started my own practice, uh, those are the kind of clients they would refer to me. And so, you know, more and more over the years, it's just become more of a niche, and um, that's a good fit. That that makes sense. I, I was going to say, like, most people don't find the tax code to be very interesting. Most people aren't li- wired like us, Dan, especially when it comes to super nuanced uh, work in equity compensation. Like, I know a handful of people who have the CEP who, you know, design the equity plans for some of these companies I just named and that sort of thing. And those people are super wonky, you know, <laughs> like to roll up their sleeves, get into the minutia tax nerds. But like, they're few and far in between. And so that's why I was, I was curious, like why you would even do that to yourself and add on top of it, another layer of complexity. But, uh, you and I, I, I've seen you present and and chatted with you enough to know that you're one of those people. Um, so I, I, what is it about that work? I guess is the question that you actually enjoy so much. Well, I ask myself that question a lot this time of year, but, uh, you know, I took a, I took a class with sophomore year, maybe a tax class in college and uh, it was my favorite class um, and then I took advanced tax which nobody does because uh, you don't have to it's not required and I like that too and I just uh, it, there's an answer you know if you're an accountant you get to choose between audit and tax for the most part and audit you go through you go to a company you look at a few things and you come up with these review notes and that's the end of it there's no product you're not finishing anything whereas with tax you're, you're giving someone a finished product they're getting a return and um, I like that aspect of it. Always have. Yeah, I, I like that. There's no, uh, there's no real right answer in the world of equity in the sense that everything is a preference. You know, as far as the the, the end client that you're you're working with, it here's the right answer in the sense of here's what the IRS is going to tax you if you do this thing. But I can't tell you necessarily that you versus the person in the office next to you should do the exact same thing with your equity, which then makes it a little bit more interesting on a day to day basis versus that audit work that you're you're talking about. Like the numbers are going to be the numbers. It's one and it's zero. But when you bring the human element into it and everybody's life is different and everybody's preferences are different and all that kind of stuff, then it actually does start to make it a little bit more interesting. I think, um, yeah, you've chosen to, Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, you've chosen to layer in additional complexity, focusing with folks like at private companies, for example, right? Which is almost always more complex than folks who work at publicly traded companies because the rules are a little more uh, institutionalized by the time you get to a a public company. Uh, Well, I guess I should ask, would you agree with my framing or do you think they're equal in complexity or the other way around? Oh, uh, they're just different. Yeah, you've got different things to consider. Um, with with startups versus you know a, a robust company that uh, mostly does RSUs. I mean that that's a whole different a different consideration. A little less less strategy, I'd say. But mm-hmm. you know sometimes because the dollars are bigger up front, uh, just as important when it comes to strategizing. Yeah, I, I 
I just feel like because the playbook has sort of been written, right? If you're a senior software engineer at X company, your uh, salary side of the equation is within a very tight box and your number of RSUs are within a pretty tight box. And so it becomes, you know, pretty formulaic. But at startups, especially if you're one of the first 20, 50 employees, like things are very fluid. And so it becomes a lot more uh, complex and confusing. But I, I, you you get where I'm going. But one of the reasons I wanted to have you on, Dan, is because in the world of equity compensation, like I'm sure you can agree there are no do overs. You have to get it right the first time. And what I mean by that is if you make a mistake managing your shares, you decide to do a cashless exercise, for example, when you could have had someone stake you and instead borrow uh, funds to right. cover that gap where you needed liquidity immediately, but the company was, sure. you know, months away from IPO, for example, right? And those types of decisions could be the difference between creating wealth and losing it. That's why I believe it's so important not to only seek professional help from folks like yourself, but also ask questions to make sure you really understand your individual situation. So my question to you after all that wind up is whether you're seeing anything new or unique to the 2021 tax filing season that folks should be aware of as they're being strategic about the 2022 tax year that we're in now. Yeah, I mean, not so much on the early startup, but RSUs are definitely going to be, wash sales are going to be a huge issue um, going forward. Both, I've seen a little bit of it in um, 2021, and basically for listeners that don't know, wash sales, where you sell shares that are in a loss position, uh, and you acquire other shares of the same company either 30 days before or after that sale, so the IRS doesn't let you um, swap out shares and take the loss. They, they want you to really dispose of the asset before you get that loss. And so for the last five or six years, hasn't been much of a problem because most of the companies uh, in the Silicon Valley anyway, uh, have just been going up and up. So your RSUs vest. And then by the time your, your trading window opens, they're usually worth more than when they vested and you sell them at a gain and go in your merry way and you're happy. Uh, but, you know, throughout 2021, uh, some some up and downs occurred. And so people might have sold some shares and they might have been at a loss. And then 20 days later, they invest a new lot. Uh, and so that that generates an issue. And the, the brokerage houses are not always going to track that with RSUs. Uh, if you have a, a just a regular trading account and you have a wash sale, it's going to show up and that's it's going to be easy for you. And you just plug in the numbers in your tax return. But with RSUs, that it's not going to not going to be kept track of. And so that That means I have to figure it out for you or someone like me. Well, it's also a a matter of communicating that there was a sale at all to your uh, tax professional, right? Like you assume that it's obvious anytime you do a data dump, you send over a bunch of documents and information to your to your accountant that it's going to be obvious what they need to know and, you know, call it a day. But making sure that you communicate to that person, hey, I had these shares vest and I also sold these shares. Right. So be on the lookout. Uh, Absolutely. The whole reporting thing just bring makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck a little bit when I think <laughs> about this and, and talking to clients about it, because one of the more common mistakes that I bump into uh, in my day job when meeting with you know a new financial planning client is around them being double taxed on RSUs. And I know you've seen this before as well, because uh, we've talked about it, but where a person will get the 1099B you know, from their broker or custodian and because they file their taxes themselves even 
They just add right. the income from shares received and sold and going about their business. And yeah. rather than taking the extra step to indicate to the IRS that they have a basis in those shares, that's not zero dollars. Uh, they they go ahead and just transfer the information and, and end up being double taxed. Do you have a rule of thumb in this scenario to help, help folks avoid making this mistake? Yeah. Just know that or these kinds are- of mistakes, I should say. Yeah, if you sell RSUs, you have basis. Your basis is equal to what the value was when invested. And so if you look at your, you know, my rule of thumb in the office for my staff is if you see a short-term capital gain from a company uh, Mm -hmm. that the the client works for, probably we need a basis adjustment there, whether it's Mm -hmm. RSUs with no basis listed or ESPP, where we can talk about that later, but um, ESPP with disqualifying piece that's in the W-2, there needs to be an adjustment there. So my rule of thumb is you probably shouldn't have a whole lot of short-term capital gains mm-hmm. from the company you work for. I mean, you can in some cases, but you know, it's it's a red flag for me. That's the first thing I look at when I bring on a new, new client that has a stock comp and I look at their previous return is, all I have to do is look at the Schedule D and if I see a short-term capital gain from their company, I, I start to dig a little deeper. Yeah. It- you, you you alluded to this before, but I think it's worth repeating, too, that just selling and not thinking about it doesn't really do what you might think it's doing or simplify things the way you might think it is in the sense that uh, in a normal market cycle like we're in today, where not every single tech company is going up and up and up indiscriminately <laughs> like it was in 2020 and 2021, people yeah. are receiving RSUs that are underwater a month or two later. And so yep. reporting basis properly, accounting for shares properly, all those kind of things are just as important as if the stock had shot the moon since you received that tranche of shares. But uh, it's more right. likely now an issue than it was two years ago right. uh, or a year ago. So just I know you already said it, but I just felt like it, it bears saying yeah. again in case folks didn't get the, the message and, the first time. And I'll say this, be strategic on what sh- shares you sell when you sell mm-hmm. them talk to your advisor before you do it. Because I see it all the time on tax returns, where if the client had called me, I would have told them to sell a different lot or just to yeah. do it in a different order. And so sometimes it can be simple, just sell first in, first out, but sometimes you want to sell specific lots. And that, that's where you just need to be in touch with professionals that can tell you to do it how <laughs> the right way. Well, let's stay there for a second, because that is a very common conversation I, I tend to have with clients who are paid in equity, which is that yep. you don't just want to sell indiscriminately. You want to actually right. ha- pick the specific lot that you're selling. And so we will do a screen share and I'll have them yep. log into Fidelity or, or whatever um, brokerage their shares are held at to make sure mm-hmm. that they're selling the right one, because To your point, if you just say sell $500 worth or sell $50,000 worth or sell 10,000 shares, the account is likely set up automatically to default first in, first out. And so literally the first shares that you received into that account, which are your oldest shares, which probably have the lowest basis or could have the lowest basis, I should say means that you're now triggering a gain where if you chose the lot more specifically, you probably could have chosen the ones with the highest uh, share price or the closest to today's share price and saved yourself a little bit of heartburn in the way of uh, capital gains taxes. So I won't uh, get too deep into the weeds on that one, um, but I think you can get sort of where we're going that the lot of shares that you sell 
does actually matter more than uh, you think it does, which is even more than I thought we were going to get out of that part where I was just focused on making sure they take care of the 8949 to to show their basis and then also carry right. over that information to Schedule D. But I'm super glad that you thought to bring that in, too, because choosing the right lot of shares um, definitely important too. But so while we're on the subject of RSUs, let's talk about withholding. Because another common tax trap that I see folks fall into is not withholding enough throughout the year and then being caught off guard when they go to file and realize they owe significantly more. Any rules of thumb you have around either modifying your W-4 or even knowing (laughs) how much additional to put on there so that this doesn't happen to you? How do you normally advise your, your folks? So in my world, withholding is is inconsequential for the most part. Most of my clients are doing quarterly estimates. Uh, the, the withholding rules are made for the country uh, where average W-2s are you know, uh, much lower than they're going to be in, in the Bay Area. And so uh, with, with a large RSU vest, the, the standard withholding rate is going to be 22%. That's set by federal law. And that's never going to cover the effective rate for most of my clients is, is above 30%. So we know that we're going to be 8% short at the very minimum on most of our RSU vests. And there is no way to change withholding uh, on your regular salary to make up for that. Now, you can. some companies will let you up the withholding on your RSUs, and that's fine, but that's a financial decision because what you're doing there is having less shares uh, that get released to you. So if the company is going up and up and up and you're going to hold on to some of those shares, you might not want to do that. You might want to you know, have them uh, vest and then hold them and then sell them when, they, when they're worth a little bit more. So Yeah, nobody um, opts to have more shares withheld. <laughs> everybody yeah, believes people, I mean, in their company do. through and through. And uh, I shouldn't say yeah. nobody. That's a very blanket statement. But you know what I mean? Yeah. Talking to clients who work for the company and they believe in the company's prospects for the future and whatever. Right. When you mention oh, you could just have additional shares withheld that way, it offsets, you know, your 22 to 37 supplemental wage, you know, withholding and you keep going. And they're like, are you crazy? So <laughs> I, I take your point, but it's unlikely. Yeah. So, you know, quarterly payments, it's just about knowing. And sometimes you you might not need quarterly payments. You might need just a balance due in the following year. And that that's fine as long as you know about it. So for my clients, they know that when their RSUs vest, that there's going to be a shortfall there. And they, they either expect to pay quarterlies as necessary or they expect a balance due with their return. And that that's about just educating and, and, and knowing. Um, but there's withholding is is not the way to solve that problem for sure. So what's interesting about you saying that is I I started this, my intro, when I started this, I I said something to the effect of if you've had to pay more taxes, it's a function of making more money. And it's, it's almost what you just said in the sense that you just need to be prepared to have to pay either quarterly or once you go to file. Because one of the things I typically recommend to folks who don't want to increase their withholding on their W-4 and have to worry about how to calculate, you know, where you'd fall because you're almost never going to get it exactly right. uh, You just should be saving funds along the way all year that are earmarked to pay right. those additional taxes. So like if for the last two years, you've had to write a check for another 20 or $25,000 when you go to file, just get in the habit of sitting aside $25,000 in a separate savings account after you get your annual bonus or some other large cash infusion that you'll have available to cover that bill. 
And so at least it's no longer a surprise and you aren't so bent out of shape about it when it happens. And like you said, I think education, sure, but I think this is one that just comes along with growing into the role of being a senior leader or executive. Like you have to think about yourself and your financial life differently than you did when you were on the way up. Right. Which just means that you'll have some new high class problems to work around. That's all. It's not the end of the world. But the sooner you accept that this is the new reality, this is where you are now uh, and life has changed, the sooner you can begin being more proactive and setting a strategy going forward, like meeting with your accountant to do quarterly payments or it's a five minute phone call. Right. For 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 you, it's not even necessarily a meeting. Um, but OK, I'm off my soapbox. Pardon my rant. This is this is something I find myself talking to my younger clients about quite frequently, where life has gone a little bit better than they expected it would by this point. And they're having to recalibrate their approach and their mindset. And so that's that's how I ended up down that rabbit hole. So my apologies. So, but I've also noticed that folks who work for companies offering RSUs also typically participate in the ESPP. And you were gonna, you were gonna say something about this before the employee stock purchase plan. Let me make sure, just in case anybody's uh, not necessarily familiar. Even though by now, I'm, I'm sure that can't be the case. But those are treated differently from RSUs. And there's actually two different types of ESPPs, which are treated differently, which come with different tax treatments and all that. So to be clear, in this case, I am referring to the section, was it 423 tax qualified ESPPs, which require you to hold the shares purchased through there for two years from the offering date and one year from the purchase date. And I know that the usual mantra among folks in the tech community is to buy in, capture the 15% discount and sell as soon as allowable so that you can capture as much of that built in 15% gain as possible, quote unquote gain as possible. But if you're going to pay ordinary income taxes on that gain and you're in the 35 or 37% bracket, that may not be as advantageous as just holding on to the shares for a couple of years and paying long-term cap gains later. Uh, do you have any rules of thumb or insight on this one? Because I know you wanted to jump into ESPP and we kind of got away from yeah. it. One of two paths. So you said it. So either just go ahead and buy and sell right away, get your 15% and call it an extra, extra bonus for the year, essentially. Um, or if you're going to use that as part of your investments uh, and purchase those shares and hold on to them, then hold on to them. That's the last shares I always tell my clients to sell if they're using that strategy as ESPP. Sell some of your RSUs first, sell even ISOs first. Hold on to your ESPP and never, ever, ever move them out of the brokerage account where they were originally housed. That's, that's a huge mistake. Um, that that creates havoc in the future for say more about that basis. why why shouldn't i move my espp <laughs> funds out of the brokerage account because your company needs to know when you sell those shares uh because they even if you hold espp for five years and you've left the company and you sell them there is a bargain element that is going to show up in a w2 and your company needs to know about that and they issue you a 1099 uh, excuse me i'm sorry a w2 and so if you move those out, you're going to have no basis information. You're just going to see zero basis essentially, and you might end up paying extra tax. So those ones, especially, I, you know, I, I have lots of clients that that might need an equity line out of their out of their accounts, and so they want to move their RSUs from E-Trade to Charles Schwab or wherever, uh, and that's fine. Uh, you know, with with RSUs, as long as you know what your basis is, it's pretty straightforward. But ESPP always keep those in the in the house that 
that they were originally vested into. Yeah, thankfully with RSUs, the basis actually travels with the shares. But I've I've seen one, a lot of companies like an E-Trade will actually block you from moving the ESPP most of the time for this, I, I think for this reason, um, because it creates a lot of headache for, for them. Yeah. But I've also seen where uh, companies like that have started spinning up their own securities-backed lines of credit internally so that you don't even have to uh, go away to, to do this. Uh, it's, it's later days, right? They should have been here five, 10 years ago since <laughs> yeah. these things have existed for 15 years, but at least I guess better late than never, right? At least the, the capabilities are catching up to the demand. But I, I, I'm glad that you thought to get that out there because I, yeah. Uh, have heard some of those horror stories where people are doing some really large purchases in ESPPs and the basis really made a difference, right? If you're talking $10,000 worth of shares you bought, maybe you don't care as much, but if you're 100,000, 250,000 or so, a lot of shares you did through the ESPP for the time you were at a company, you need those numbers. Um, So that's, I'm glad you brought that up. But so we talked about the, okay, so we've talked about the ESPP. We've talked about RSUs. Let's shift our focus to their more complicated cousin, which is stock options. And I I point this out because stock options are special, right? And I think they have to be respected and treated as such. Well, usually I should say, if you own ISOs in a company that went public and then cratered, you're probably not all that thrilled right now, right? But in general, based on their tax favorability and your ability to control how and when you're taxed to an extent, they're both they're worth preserving for as long as possible. That's my take on it. Any rules of thumb or, or traps to avoid uh, that you're usually counseling clients on? Yeah, I mean, there's just lots of strategy around ISOs, especially. Non-quals are, are pretty straightforward. I, I tell people, think of non-quals as a cash bonus that you get to decide when when you get that bonus based on the, the value of the the company at that time, but with That's ISOs, really I'm going to steal that one, by the way, <laughs> please, please do. <laughs> um, and the RSU is sort of similar. I mean, it's just a cash bonus that comes in the form of stock. But um, when it comes to ISOs there, there's just an infinite number of different situations you can be in. So the, the key there is to understand the functionality of ISOs, what AMT means, what an AMT tax credit is. Uh, how those two interact with your regular taxes, what it means to do a disqualifying disposition or exercise and hold for one year and one day, uh, those kinds of things. So as long as you kind of have a basic framework of what the tax treatment are, are tax treatment treatments are, uh, you can make a fully informed decision along with how bullish or bearish you are on your own company stock. And then avoid any major pitfalls from a tax standpoint. I mean, you don't want to do anything that is going to put an un, undue burden on you from a tax perspective. Um, but you also have to know that what you're going to end up with in your pocket is going to have more to do with where the company goes than it is to any taxes you pay. Yeah, I, I'm glad that you spent that that time on ISO specifically, because I, I, I said in my example before, right, the idea that if you own ISOs in a company that went public and then and then created, you're probably not all that thrilled with them. But in general, based on their tax favorability and your ability to control how and when you're taxed uh, on those shares to an extent, I say they're worth preserving as long as possible. And one of my main concerns when I talk to would-be clients about their ISOs is that they usually think about them with the same level of 
regard as RSUs or NSOs or anything else. Mentally, they just lump all of their shares into one big pot. And this goes to the whole lot of shares thing that we were talking about before. If they go to sell, they just sell X shares of Tesla or Apple or whatever. Has this been your experience with incentive stock options specifically as well? Or do you usually see people who treat them a little bit differently and understand, give them the respect they're due, I should say? Yeah, it depends because I have a range of clients from where all they have is ISOs from a very early stage company versus middle range where we've got RSUs and ISOs, you know, because the company grew so fast. I got a lot of snowflake clients in Mm -hmm. this position. They're they're, all of a sudden they're having these huge RSU vests and then they also have these ISOs left over from two years ago uh, when pre-IPO. So um, it is really case by case, but Yes, ISOs are extremely special uh, and should be strategized around. And, you know, sometimes you want to sell your RSUs first and sometimes you might want to sell your ISOs first. It just depends case by case. So that, uh, there is no perfect strategy for ISOs. There's no yeah. plan that you can put in place day one and say, this is what I'm going to do over the next X number of years or or decades you just kind of got to take it case by case and it's going to change as the stock changes and it's different for public companies and private companies and early stage companies and so that's that's i guess that's why i'm employed um because (laughs) you know it's hard to hard to keep track of all this stuff and so i i expect my clients to be in touch with me before they make these kinds of decisions because there is no roadmap you can you can't search on google what's the best thing to do with my isos that's that's not a thing uh you just gotta take it take it day by day and make good decisions but all the while knowing that again you're not going to get rich because you do the perfect thing from a tax standpoint Mm -hmm. uh you can just avoid making huge mistakes i i equate it to the swim in a triathlon and no one ever won a triathlon because they're a really good swimmer but you can certainly lose one and it's Mm -hmm. the same Mm -hmm. same thing here you can you can go way wrong on on isos but you're not going to get rich because you do the perfect thing from a tax standpoint as you're talking about the big mistakes and avoiding the big pitfalls versus the little the little things that are subjective, I, I think mm-hmm. about the cashless exercise, which when you mentioned snowflake snowflake, it it my ears perked up because I'm thinking about really 2020 and 2021, where we had a number of companies that um, folks started working for them when they were private. Uh, they yep. came public and now you've got a mix of both. And so if you were a Coinbase person or a Airbnb person or a Snowflake, like you said, uh, those types of companies, uh, one of the more common recurring conversations I find myself having is like the company came public with folks who were excited and wanted to sell their shares, but you know they lacked the funds necessary to purchase those shares outright. So their only option as they saw it was to execute this cashless exercise. Can you say a bit about that approach and what you would typically counsel your clients to be aware of whenever they decide to do this? Yeah, I mean, if you have other options, it, again, it's I, I always defer to the financial planners when it comes okay. to selling shares, uh, because from a tax perspective, I have no real problem with a disqualifying disposition or cashless exercise where you're just you don't you want to sell the shares because you want you want the cash and you don't want the shares that Mm -hmm. in my world that's not the end i mean the difference between a qualified disposition of an iso and a disqualifying disposition or same day sale 13 percent in tax Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And that's with zero risk. And in my world where I'm not, I'm not thinking about your overall financial picture or your risk tolerances, that I'm not that worried about that 13%. I mean, obviously, I'd, I'd like to have both. Um, I'd like to have you save the 13% and take no risk, but that's not, that's not a reality, but there are cases where we can do that. And that's where tax planning comes in. Um, but you know, I mean, a, a cashless exercise is not the end of the world. If you are just trying to liquidate shares, um, yeah, the, you know, go ahead. The main reason this is my least favorite way to go here is because in a, a cashless exercise, you're hit with the worst possible type of tax there is, like you said, ordinary income. Um, and so these shares are designed to be more tax advantageous than other forms of options if executed properly. And so my the red flag goes up for me just because it's like we're not optimizing these shares as much as we possibly could. Um, not even necessarily just from a tax planning perspective, like you said, but more so from the perspective of you're only going to get one shot at the right. the optionality of these options. And that's oh, that's really where my my issue is. Yeah. So it'd be a huge mistake if you if you knew the stock was going to stay flat or go up. But mm-hmm. when when I add in, I'm risk adverse. That's why I'm a tax accountant. Um, <laughs> when I add in the risk of you know, the stock going down over a year period, you exercise and hold, you've got lots of risk. A lot of that may be a function of what your strike price is, uh, how much you're actually putting out of, of your own pocket, what the current fair market value is, how much AMT you're going to end up you know, paying on the exercise and how you'll have to wait to get that back when you sell the shares. Um, so there's, there's lots of factors there, but I counsel my clients all the time. If they want to take some off the table, you know, a disqualifying disposition can, can be a good thing because it's going to raise your ordinary income, which obviously is bad, but you've got, you've got the cash, but then that also is going to raise what's called the empty crossover point. So if you have other shares you're exercising and holding, you might be able to exercise and hold those without paying any AMT. So that, that's, a, that's a, a calculation I do quite often for people is, hey, I want to take 20% of my shares off the table, and then I want to use the proceeds of that to cover the, the taxes and on the shares I sell and on the um, AMT of the shares I'm exercising and holding and to cover the, the cost. You know, what, how many shares do I, do I sell? You know, that kind of thing. And then that, that can be very strategic. Again, if the company just goes up and up and up, well, then that's a horrible plan. You should have just borrowed the money and exercised and held all the shares. But, you know, we don't, we don't have the luxury of a, a crystal ball, unfortunately. Yeah. So before we jump into AMT, because you just brought that up and that's a whole other rabbit hole that I do want to go down briefly uh, <laughs> with you. But I feel like you and I just got off into nerd speak land and I want to make sure that mm-hmm. I bring people back into <laughs> at least somewhere 100%. back into where we are. So normally you'd need cash to afford your option exercise, but that can be expensive. Not everybody has a few hundred thousand or even a couple million dollars to buy into their position, to buy those options, especially when you factor in the tax liability. So a cashless exercise uh, can cover that expense without it coming out of pocket. You're able to cover all of your expenses with the proceeds of just selling the shares uh, as they are. Another important detail here, a, a cashless exercise or same day sell, I heard you use that uh, that phrase too, it's only possible if the company you own shares in has gone public. If your company is still private, you'll have to wait. And if you've already left the company before the IPO took place, you probably don't have this option available anymore. So those are the the 
yeah. tidbits, I think, are wor- worth making sure that people understand because it's a very nuanced group of people that this is going to pertain to. Like I said, the folks <laughs> who worked for a company when it was private, you were there long enough to get those those ISOs and such, and then they went public and you stuck around after the IPO. That's that's mainly who we're talking about and to in that section. And the last uh, thing that I'll say on this one to keep from feeling like I'm beating a dead horse here is that uh, there are companies out there now that have developed platforms to lend you money to purchase your options outright for a fee, but a much smaller fee than what you would end up paying in taxes to make this happen. But, you know, as you said, Dan, that's for folks who are extremely bullish on their company's future value and aren't necessarily so worried about taking the dollars and running while they know the bird in the hand, I should say, while they know what they've got. So rather than jump down that rabbit hole, I'll just tease it out and let the audience know that we do have an episode on that very concept in the works. So stay tuned. But now, since I promised you that we were going to talk everybody's favorite topic, AMT, um, Let's let's tackle that one real quick and sticking with ISOs for a moment. Right. If you're so fortunate to hold them and you decide to hold on to them long enough to qualify for the more favorable tax treatment, you're also exposing yourself to that alternative minimum tax that Dan was talking about. So that can be problematic if you're hit with the AMT on paper gains that you're holding on those ISO shares. But then the company's stock price plummets. That's the one that I'm concerned about. How do you typically advise your clients to think about and plan for the AMT surprise? Yeah, so it's going to be case by case. But in, in general, uh, I tell them, think of AMT as an interest-free loan to the government, because that's essentially what it is. Over the lifetime of exercising and selling ISOs, you should end up having paid no AMT uh, and just paid long-term capital gains, assuming you do all qualified dispositions. Uh, it's just essentially you have to pay that some of that in early and then you get it back as a as a credit. But there are cases where it can take an unduly amount of time to get it back. For example, like you said, if the stock plummets uh, when you sell those shares, you might not generate enough tax in that year to use all the credit and then the rest of it would carry forward. Um, the other one is the good one. If you exercise the shares when they're worth you know, 10, $20 per share and then you sell at 500 per share, uh, you're going to have so much long-term gain when you dispose of those. You might not use all your credit. Uh, I don't think you have to worry too much about that scenario. I think you'll be happy enough. Um, so I, that's that's what I tell all my clients. So AMT needs to be planned around. That's that's the key. It's it's not the end of the world. Uh, essentially, it, it's a it's a zero-sum game in the long run. But as you add more and more zeros, it becomes a bigger big deal. So if I have clients and they've got a couple hundred thousand worth of of ISOs and they're going to generate 10, 15, $20,000 worth of AMT. I'm going to say, don't even worry about it. If you can handle the cash flow aspect of it, it's a non-factor. When you start adding zeros behind that, it becomes a factor because it might take you, if things go wrong with that company, it might take you the rest of your life to use that credit. Uh, and then some, some after that. So um, that, that's my general idea on, on AMT. Thankfully, the passage of the TCJA, I think I said that right. In 2017, did raise the AMT income exemption amounts and the the income point where the exemptions start to phase out, which reduced the likelihood of triggering the AMT for for exactly. a lot of people. But predicting the implications of an ISO exercise, whether uh, whether or not you'll trigger AMT, um, is a necessary consideration. Like Dan just said, in your tax planning, 
and should be taken seriously regardless of whether you uh, assume you'll fall on the right side of of that equation or not. So that's that's another one of those that's just a plug for being proactive and having open yeah. dialogue with your tax uh, professional long before uh, April 15th. And it's time to just do a data dump and run away. So if you take nothing else from this conversation, it's about the the proactivity needed after you've gotten to this point between you and your different group of advisors. And you bring up a great point with the new tax law. One of the great things that came out of that in my world is that that, yeah, that threshold for AMT is, is higher than it ever was before. And so that means each year you could exercise some ISOs if you have them without paying AMT that we call that the AMT crossover point. And that's like ISO 101 strategy. You want to be exercised, assuming you think the shares are worth what your strike price is, you want to be exercising to that crossover point every year. And that's where you, you need to, to find someone that can calculate that for you. And um, that's, that is a, that's kind of a no-brainer territory because you're not taking on any additional risk. I'm glad you saved that little nugget to the very end because that means the folks have to listen to the whole episode to to get that, <laughs> that, that valuable little nugget. But uh, so my last question for you as we get ready to bring this thing to a close actually has absolutely nothing to do with taxes uh, nor equity compensation. Um, but let's say that uh, you, you you had to do something completely different. The, you never found your passion for taxes and equity comp, right? But money wasn't a factor in your decision-making at all. What do you think you'd be doing right now? I'd be on a beach drinking a margarita. I, I don't know. <laughs> um, that's what I think about a lot during taxis. I've, I've had a, a tradition for at least the last 15 years of, of being on a beach by April 18th or so. Um, the last two years, notwithstanding the, the extensions, but, uh, uh, you know, I think I'd probably, I, I coached for many years, uh, even when I was a tax count in my early days, I coached high school cross country and, and track. And I think I'd probably go back to that. I miss it a lot. It, it got too, too overwhelming as I had my own practice. I thought having my own practice would mean I had more, more time to, to coach. And it turned out to be the exact opposite. It just got to be just too much. So. Um, I'd, I'd probably go, go back to that. It'd be different now that I'm, uh, 10, 10 years older than I was last time I coached. Can't run with the kids as much, but, uh, certainly would be a, a rewarding, rewarding thing to go back to. Well, as a fellow runner, I can certainly appreciate that one. I, I, I dig that one. Um, well, I tell you what, thanks, Dan. I, I appreciate you, you coming and doing this. This was great. Uh, where can people find you if they want to learn more about you and or your firm after this goes live? Uh, website Silicon Valley Tax Group dot uh, com pretty pretty simple. Um, I'm happy to to talk to anybody and um, this time of year we're a, a little a little pressed for it's time. A little late. Yeah. Uh, as soon as uh, May hits, we 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 open the lines back up and start talking to new people. Got it. Awesome. Well, Eric with an A. Assuming you're still awake after all this tax talk, uh, why don't you go ahead and close this out, sir? All right. Well, this was great and. Malcolm, I like that ending where, you know, as a fellow runner, uh, you appreciate that. I will say this as a fellow who does not run, I have respect <laughs> for both of you. So uh, again, guys, thank you so much, Dan, for being on the show. Malcolm, thank you for bringing him on the show. And our last thank you is always for you listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the tech money podcast with Malcolm Etheridge. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below this way. When Malcolm comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. We humbly ask that you share this podcast and leave a review as this will help others find the show. And, you know, that's just more people getting smarter. So that's great. You can connect with Malcolm on social at Malcolm on Money. 
We'd love to hear from you and answer any questions you have. And you can do so by emailing them to podcast at techmoney.com. Thanks again for listening today. For everyone at Tech Money, our hope is that this show helped make you a little smarter about your money. This has been the Tech Money Podcast. For more information on today's topic, to review the show notes, or to catch up on past episodes, be sure to check out malcolmetheridge.com slash podcast. And if you have an idea for a show topic that you'd like us to cover, or you want to send us feedback, the web address again is malcolmetheridge.com. You can also find Malcolm across all social media platforms at Malcolm on Money. This episode was written and created by Malcolm Etheridge, with the production, the editing and sound controls powered by Proudmouth. This has been a Malcolm on Money original. Thank you for listening. The information shared in this recording and by its guests represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not represent the views or opinions of the host. This content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This content is not, nor is it intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. It is always recommended that you seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your personal financial situation. This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. Our team of certified public accountants and enrolled agents is well-versed in the latest tax laws, ensuring that you capitalize on every opportunity for strategic tax optimization. We anticipate changes and keep you up to date on opportunities to potentially reduce your tax bill in the future. With a focus on precision and strategic planning, we are your trusted partner both during tax season and throughout the year. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com.